Today we're continuing a tradition that it seems we've started. Instead of reading the morning scripture, it's going to be sung for us. So again, we have a, we have a singing of it, and I'm going to invite Hannah to come forward. And I'm going to make a mess and make her clean up my mess. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about as Mother Mary was. I should be married just a book before them together. She was supposed to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because of her husband was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to disclose her true public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after me, I considered this. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive in their son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke he was he the love of the Lord and took Mary home as his wife. But the general comes together to give her to a son, and he gave her the name Jesus. Whoop. But what I can tell you for certain is that next week, even though we will be talking about them, we are not singing We Three Kings, Jacob. No, 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 we're not going to sing that. So, friends, what is Jesus' last name? What's Jesus' last name? A lot of people think that his last name is Christ, in the same way that my last name is Colstrom. Adam Colstrom, Jesus Christ, Kevin Stuka. However, in that day and age, friends, people weren't generally identified by a last name. You were identified by your ancestry, by your hometown, by your occupation. And in fact, when we hear Jesus described in the scriptures, this is how we hear him described. For example, John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, of him, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So so again, we find him identified by his hometown and by his lineage. So if you wanted to find Jesus in that day, you would look for Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus bar Joseph, because bar was the word for son of. So Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. And all this is to say his last name is not Christ. Christ is not a name It's actually a title. Christ is a title. And we see in the very first verse of today's passage, the ESV translation or the English Standard Version of the Bible, which we usually use on Sunday mornings, gives us verse 18 in this way. Uh, It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. 
However, what you just heard sung for you and is printed in your bulletins today is a version of the NIV translation of the Bible. And the NIV translation has it slightly differently. This is what that says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Okay, good. So, the ESV says Jesus Christ, NIV Jesus the Messiah. And so, what we find is that Christ and Messiah are the same thing. So, this brings up an important point that's worth noting as we come to translating the Bible. We remember that the Scriptures were originally written, the New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And to bring them into our language, sometimes they translated and sometimes they transliterated. Transliterated. Transliteration is when we use English terms to replicate the sounds of the original Greek words. A translation gives us the meaning. A transliteration gives us the sound. So, Christ, the, the name, the, the title, Christ, is a transliteration of the Greek word, Christos. The Greek word that's, that's written for us, that Matthew writes, is Christos, and it's been transliterated to Christ. And, and that's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with transliterations. The problem is, a transliteration is not a translation. What does Christ mean? Even though it's been transliterated for us from Christos to Christ, a more English-sounding word, that doesn't tell us the meaning of the word. Well, we find here that it's rendered as Messiah in the NIV. And that's great. So we know now Christ means Messiah. Good. There's still a problem. What does Messiah mean? What does Messiah mean? And the interesting thing, friends, is that Messiah is also a transliteration. But this time, instead of from Greek, from Hebrew. Uh, again, the Hebrew word is Mashiach. Mashiach, and it's transliterated into an English-sounding word, Messiah. They're both transliterations, and they both these words mean the same thing. But now that we've transliterated them both, we now need to translate them. What does Christ, what does Messiah mean? Because we find Jesus introduced to us at the very beginning of this passage, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? And friends, at their most basic, both the word Christ and the word Messiah, in Greek and in Hebrew, they mean anointed one. The Anointed One. Now, according to the Lord's instructions in the Hebrew Scriptures, to anoint someone was to pour oil upon their head as a sign of being set apart to a special service unto God. And so in the Old Testament, we find that three types of people were generally anointed ones. They were anointed with oil and set apart for special service to the Lord. Priests were Mashiach. They were anointed ones, as we see in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12. And Moses poured out some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him, and he was consecrating him as a priest. So priests were Mashiach, they were anointed ones, set apart, anointed for special service to the Lord. But not only priests, we also find when we read the Old Testament that there were others who were anointed ones, specifically prophets 
and kings were anointed ones. And we actually see both come together in the Lord's instructions to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. It says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So we find in the Old Testament that this idea, the anointed ones, the Mashiach, they were priests, prophets, kings. Mashiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, Messiah or Christ in English. And friends, because of the Lord's promises, because of the promises that he made to his people that we have recorded throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there was an expectation that there was going to come an ultimate, a perfect Mashiach, a Messiah, an anointed one, an anointed prophet who is even greater than the prophet Moses, an anointed priest even greater than the priest Aaron, an anointed king even greater than King David. And this anointed one, whom the Lord was going to send, he was going to fulfill all of the Lord's promises, and this one, this Messiah, would rescue his people. And so we find at this place in Matthew's genealogy, that after, in Matthew's gospel, after giving us the insane genealogy that we looked at for the last two weeks, it's full of hints and Easter eggs and proofs just setting the stage, Matthew declares, He's here. He's the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one who is going to come about. He's the son of Abraham, the son of David. This is the one that God has promised and we've been waiting for. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. And what I'm recording for you all here in my Gospel, Matthew's writing, this is his story. This is the story of how the birth of the Messiah came about. And friends, what we find in the entrance of the Messiah into our world is that it was both mundane and it was magnificent. The birth of Jesus was both mundane and it was magnificent. Now, mundane, in the dictionary, it means lacking interest or excitement. But there's a second meaning to mundane when you look up the dictionary. And that is, of this earthly world, rather than a heavenly or spiritual one. And friends, Jesus' parents in his birth, his parents were mundane. They were both lacking particular interest, and they were both of this earthly world. They were a common couple, Joseph and Mary. They were living common, mundane ordinary lives. They were betrothed, which is like being engaged, but it's far more serious. You couldn't break off a betrothal except by divorce. And when Joseph discovers that Mary's pregnant, he assumes the mundane usual thing. She's been unfaithful to me. And so he does the mundane usual expected thing. I'm going to break off this engagement, but I'll do it quietly so as to not cause greater shame to her. All of this is mundane. I mean, there's really nothing special or notable about any of this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in many ways mundane. But friends, the gospel, the good news is that the magnificent is breaking into our mundane. 
Friends, the gospel is that the magnificent is breaking into our mundane. The heavenly is invading our earthly. God is not remaining far off, but something magnificent is coming from the mundane. I mean, look again at verses 20 and 21. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sins. So, so an angel appears to Joseph and says, The Lord wishes you a merry, merry Christmas. The Lord wants you to marry Mary for Christmas. Don't, don't not do it. Marry Mary for Christmas. Friends, if we're ever going to have a merry Christmas, he needs to marry Mary for Christmas. I just thought that was fun to say. Friends, let's note, the angel calls him Joseph, the son of David. I don't know who's counting, but so far in Matthew's Gospel, we're only 20 verses in at this point. Four times King David's been mentioned. Four times. Do you think Matthew's trying to make a point here? Joseph. You are the son of David. You're a descendant of David. You are the royal line of David. So thus, any child that you adopt, any child associated with you, is going to legally be of the line of David, an heir to the throne. And secondly, the angel confirms that the baby is not actually Joseph. The angel confirms that that which grows in Mary's womb is not because of Mary's unfaithfulness to Joseph. What grows in her womb is because of her faithfulness to God. Friends, Mary has not been unfaithful. Mary's pregnant because she's been faithful. She's been faithful to God. And that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So emphasized in the angel's pronouncement is that because of Joseph, legally, this baby will be of, royal, of David, David's royal lineage. But physically... This baby is of the Holy Spirit. Friends, something magnificent is breaking into our mundane. And finally, the, the angel declares in verse 21, this child will, will be the promised Messiah. He's going to be the one who's going to save his people from their sins. And so the angel says, name the child Jesus. Which is the same message that Gabriel brought to Mary when he first told her that she was going to be pregnant in Luke chapter 1. Name the child Jesus. Friends, the name Jesus is actually pretty mundane. In that time, it was nothing special. It was a common name. The name Jesus is the Greek version of the common Hebrew name Yeshua, which is translated for us in our Bibles, Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus are the same name in Hebrew, and in Greek, respectively. So the Hebrew name Joshua, or Yeshua, is composed actually of two parts. The first part, Yah, is a shortened form of God's revealed name, Yahweh. And Shua means saves. So literally, Joshua, or Jesus, means Yahweh saves. The Lord God saves. Friends, this is the gospel summarized in a name. This is the good news just summarized in the name, Yeshua, Jesus. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, you remember they cried out to be saved. 
And the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and he said, I'm going to deliver Israel. I'm going to save them. And Moses says, well, who shall I tell the Israelites is going to save them? And his response is in Exodus Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Friends, the Hebrew is Yahweh. Tell them that Yahweh, Yahweh has sent me to you. So when Matthew's first Jewish readers heard his name's Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, they would have heard his name is Yahweh saves because he's going to save his people. They would remember the exodus. They would remember the many times that God had saved and rescued his people, but now something even greater was about to happen. An even greater deliverance. Yahweh has come to save us. Just as our forefathers were saved from Egypt, this child is the promised Messiah, Yahweh saving his people from their sins. And friends, if this baby is going to save them from their sins, this is no mundane, ordinary child. Because to save people from their sins is going to take something magnificent. God's anointed prophets, the other Mashiach, his anointed prophets, they could warn the people and call them to repentance, but the prophets could never help the people fully and finally escape their sin. The other anointed ones, the anointed priests, they could offer sacrifices to, to cover over and to atone for their sins, but the priests could never lead the people to freedom from sinning. By force of law, God's anointed kings could restrain sin and could bring justice on sinners. But friends, even the most perfect king could not completely stop sin or administer perfect justice. But this Mashiach, this Messiah, this baby who's going to be born is magnificent. This Messiah is an anointed one who will save his people from their sins. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The Apostle Paul, when he wanted to define the gospel, this is how he started in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, notice, this is not good advice. This is good news. Friends, Jesus didn't just come to teach us good things. He didn't just come to be an example to us of how we should be. He didn't just come to challenge the power structures and bring some kind of social justice. This anointed one came not to just give us advice about how to save ourselves. This is the anointed one who came to save us. Jesus the Messiah was born to die that he might save his people from their sins. Friends, this is the gospel. And it's magnificent. It's magnificent news for us sinners. Because we are estranged from God. We are guilty of wrongs done and good things left undone. We are powerless to tip the scales in our favor. We are hopeless to save ourselves. So Jesus the Messiah came to be born that he might die. 
Friends, the cradle was laid in the shadow of a cross. Without the cross, you miss the true gift of Christmas. Without the cross, you miss the true gift, which is the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins, new life that never ends. And friends, maybe you're here today, or maybe you're watching us online, and all you've ever celebrated is Christmas, but you've never celebrated the cross. Maybe until this moment, you've missed the true gift of Christmas. And friends, if that's you, then hear the good news that God brought you here today, or He caused you to to log on and to watch this video so that you could receive a late Christmas gift. Please don't let this moment pass you by. I would love to talk to you following the service and to pray with you so that you can receive this gift, this magnificent gift that Jesus has come to give us. And church, remember, we've unwrapped and received the most magnificent of gifts, and that is Jesus, the Messiah. Worship, celebrate, let your life be overwhelmed by His beautiful, elaborate, extravagant love for us. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, though some dismiss the story of Jesus and his birth as either just mundane, misinterpreted, or madness. Friends, this story is magnificent. Let this story shape our life. Let it make our hearts sing. Let it pour forth from our lips. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Church, this is magnificent. And Matthew makes clear that all the mundane and magnificence of this birth is part of God's plan. Uh, look, look at verses 22 and 23 again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Matthew's here quoting the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah had spoken 700 years before Jesus was born. And the original prophecy was offered to a king named Ahaz. And he was promised a sign that everything that had been spoken to Ahaz was going to be fulfilled. And that sign was fulfilled in his time. There was probably a virgin, one from the royal palace, who was soon to be married and would have a child. And that sign was going to be proof to Ahaz that Emmanuel, that God was with them, I'm still with you, I'm still on your side, I'm still faithful. However, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew sees in the prophecy of Isaiah that while there was a fulfillment in Ahaz's day, this prophecy found a greater and a more perfect fulfillment in Jesus' birth. Because, friends, Jesus' birth perfectly fulfills Emmanuel, God with us. For Ahaz, Emmanuel was only an expression of God's presence helping. But here with the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel is the real presence of God with us. This is the perfect fulfillment of the prophecy. Truly now in Jesus, God is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to send an anointed Messiah in the line of King David. Even greater than the fulfillment in Ahaz's day, which was, hey, I'm here with you on your side. 
Jesus is Emmanuel. God's actually coming to be with us. He's taking on our flesh. He's breathing our air. He's sharing our experience. He is God with us. And friends, that is why. That's why the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, does not say, for God so loved the world, he sent a prophet. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world, he sent instructions for us to follow. For God so loved the world, he sent a sign. Friends, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, begins, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. He gave us himself. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, now friends, our technology has improved so much over the last few years that we're able to communicate and to meet and to see and to hear just about anyone, anywhere, at any time. And yet we, we know that no matter how good the technology gets, that technology can never actually bring a person in a real physical presence to be with us. And in the same way, friends, no matter how good is our religion, no matter how hard we work, our efforts can't bring the real physical presence of God to be with us. We are too weak and inconsistent to always obey. We are not strong enough to always resist temptation and do what's right. Our religion is not enough because our arms are too short. So, Emmanuel, God has reached to us. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christmas. What we and our religion were powerless to do, God has done for us in Jesus. The gospel is not good advice about what we must do to draw near to God. The gospel is good news about what God has done, drawing close to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, friends, we meet a God who's not far off, but a God who came to be with us. And by His birth, death, and resurrection, He has made a way for us to be with Him forevermore. And church, friends, this is magnificent. This is magnificent. Friends, are you allowing the magnificent presence of God to invade and transform your mundane? Are you inviting the magnificent presence of Emmanuel to transform your mundane? Friends, the angel said, Joseph, Mary, Merry Christmas. Mary, Mary, obey, follow. And he did. The angel appeared to Mary, and she too was faithful to the Lord, and she conceived a child. God met Joseph and Mary in the mundane of their lives, and because of their submission to him, their lives became magnificent. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about them. Friends, note that their obedience to God didn't make their lives easier or more comfortable. But it did make their lives magnificent. It made their lives beautiful. And church, church, do we want to have such beautiful lives? Do we want such beautiful lives? Christ was born that He might forgive our sins and that by His presence He might draw near to make our mundane lives magnificent. Not easier, not more comfortable, but more beautiful. Because they're used for His purposes and His glory. As were Joseph and Mary's lives. Church, where are you resisting Jesus' presence in your life? Where are you still trying to save yourself rather than trusting in in Christ, in the Messiah, and what He's done for you on the cross? 
How are you struggling against obedience to Him? When and how are you choosing to cling to the mundane, to the earthly, when God wants to make your life and use your life for something magnificent? Friends, St. Augustine famously asked a question. What difference does it make that Christ was born so long ago in Bethlehem if he be not born in me? Let's pray. Oh, Father, make our lives magnificent. Forgive us for choosing the mundane, the ordinary, the usual, the known, the comfortable, rather than submitting our lives to you and letting them be made magnificent for your purposes and for your glory. Forgive us, Father, for not treasuring and celebrating. And forgive us for being ashamed of your magnificent gospel, which sounds like foolishness to this world, but to those who are being saved is the very power of God for salvation. Oh, Father, may our lives be wrapped up and overwhelmed by your magnificence. May you be known, may you be seen, and may you be glorified. We give ourselves now to you. In Jesus' name, amen.